right. Hello, everybody. Uh, back with Richard Hanania, another exciting edition of Colin. If you are tuning in this afternoon, just want to give you the exciting announcement that uh, we're going to do regular uh, shows together here on Colin. Uh, probably won't always be at this time. In fact, I think we're most likely going to be doing it on uh, Thursdays going forward um, because Friday late afternoon Eastern time is probably not the ideal for uh, a call-in. But uh, nonetheless, uh, people are around because call-in is exploding in popularity. So just wanted to let you know that we'll be doing it with some frequency. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk a bit about, uh, obviously Ukraine. I sort of partially wonder nowadays if people are sick of me talking about Ukraine and not diversifying what I'm following a bit more because it probably is true that I've become <laughs> overwhelmingly focused on this issue for now a couple of months. So, uh, it does occur to me that maybe some of my listenership or readership is, fed up with my single-minded uh, focus, but, you know, it was sort of a similar thing for me uh, with, you know, like Russiagate at times during the heights of it back during the Trump years, and um, I, I just can't really bring myself to be that interested right now in, like, trans women in sports or whatever, so uh just have to keep following my intuitions, I guess. Um, so uh, a couple of things... Um, Richard, because you probably more than me are diversifying what you're following at the moment, and you are still uh, sort of keyed into like cultural debates or culture war uh, topics to some degree. And one thing that I've noticed, and I don't have a fully formed theory on this yet, and I don't have like a uh, overriding explanation for it yet. It's just sort of the beginnings of a sense that I've developed is that a lot of the people who might be broadly categorized as, you know, this kind of new wave of anti-woke pundits. I mean, I don't like that term anti-woke, but just a shorthand. Uh, pundits who garnered popularity in the me online media ecosystem over the past couple of years because they were against the grain on some of these more pathological trends in the larger media landscape around, uh, you know, race or gender or gender identity and this sort of thing. Um, now, on discrete issues, uh, oftentimes I find myself largely in agreement with them. And I don't want to really name anybody in particular because who needs that kind of drama? Um, but I do notice and have noticed over the past couple of months that when it comes to foreign policy, um, namely Ukraine, they're kind of just another prong of the consensus. I mean, they seem either kind of ardently supportive of U.S. policy and they're doing the pro-Ukraine kind of uh, required ritualistic uh, displays of fidelity, uh, or they just don't really talk about it at all. And uh, it's frankly alienated me more and more from those types of people, not even because necessarily I'm now going to disagree with them on certain cultural topics, but because it seems to like bespeak a certain superficiality in their worldview. Mm. Maybe this is myopic of me, um, but 
I just can't shake the feeling that there's something slightly off with you if you have no firm convictions at all or you have no uh, analysis at all on the Ukraine situation, particularly if it's like your full-time job to follow current events. Um, so uh, have you noticed something akin to that or what do you think of yeah. – yeah. Yeah. Now, this is. I mean, this is something that I've been uh, really uh, interested in. Like you, I mean, I think we are. Uh, you know, we pay attention to a lot of the same people. And I'll start by saying, I mean, there's some people who actually. I'm impressed that they didn't go along with the current thing. I mean, the people who uh, are. You know, people who have derided as people who have no ideas. I mean, the Trumpists and MAGA people, uh, people like Tucker Carlson. I've actually been surprised that they've sort of maintained their skepticism uh, about American foreign interventions during this thing. So that you know, that's that's. Uh, that's sort of one faction. Um, and then another faction of the anti-wokes, I think these are more the people who call themselves classical liberals or people who, you know, just sort of are moderates or centrists or just don't like wokeness, but don't really have firm beliefs. And I think a lot of these people, they don't have firm beliefs on a lot of things. Like their economics sometimes will be all over the place. You'll read them and they'll say things that sound like, you know, they're, they're pro-free market and they'll say other things that sort of sound like socialist. But those people, I think, um, really got swept up in this stuff. And often it's like, you know, it, 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 the fact is that it, it often just sort of, um, it, it uh, you know, ironically, um, it, the way they talk about these things sort of resembles, you know, the woke that they hate so much, right? The woke go and they say, well, blacks, you know, blacks are the victims, women are the victims, men, whites are the, you know, are the perpetrators, they're the problem. And then if you, you know, you can't talk to a woke person about, okay, does this, does this policy make sense? Is it fair? Is it good? You know, it's just whether you're a good person or a bad person, whether you're with, you know, whites or whether, you, whether you're with a, uh, the anti-racists. And it's, it's the same way. I mean, I understand people like they want you to, you know, they'll say stuff like, like, I want you to condemn, you know, Putin's, you know, invasion or, you know, you, you have to like start with that like moral principle that it's wrong to invade other countries, which I've never seen anyone. I've seen no, nobody, practically nobody disagree with. So it's like a completely meaningless gesture. Um, and then often, you know, that's followed by just, you know, it's not really followed by anything. It's just this mor moralism. And then you go to, okay, we have to support Ukraine. Um, you know, there's no, there's, there's no question of, what we could have done before to avoid the war, or what could we do now uh, to minimize its consequences or minimize its its length? Right? It's just about uh, signaling, you know, we are the we are the strongest, standing up for democracy, um, and you know, we we know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, and we have you know moral clarity here. Uh, so I think you're I think you're right. I think you're right that you know just being anti. I mean, wokeness is so ridiculous. So if you're just like a person with like a little bit of common sense, you can like laugh at what's going on. At, uh, at, at universities and you could say, Oh, these people, you know, crying about microaggressions or just, you know, they're coming up to you and they're saying, you know, because I'm an indigenous scholar, you know, I had one of these on Twitter the other day. Uh, I'm worth listening to. I mean, any human being with like a minimum of like intelligence and common sense, like knows to like laugh at that. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you have a uh, deep, deep thoughts on any other issue. And I think that a lot, we see a lot of that. Yeah, I think you know, to the extent that they express any kind of formulated view on the topic, and again, I realize that I'm generalizing and I'm being a little bit ambiguous as to who I'm referring to because I don't want to instigate any needless uh, drama. Uh, but to the extent that they express any kind of coherent view, I mean, it's not actually coherent at all. It's just sort of a sloganeering. Well, they'll say, yeah, stand with Ukraine. Obviously, the invasion is bad and maybe a couple more points that you could find anywhere in just popular media and that's the 
that's what their opinion basically amounts to. Um, you know, it sort of gets back to a, a thought that occurred to me a couple of weeks ago, and then I tweeted at the time, um, which is that I think that there should be a bit more of an imperative for when somebody, especially if they're in a position of power or influence, says we have to stand with Ukraine or support Ukraine to clarify what it is exactly that they mean. Because if you look at just, you know, sort of the corporate signaling around the Ukraine war or kind of more maybe just celebrities talking about it or people just in the popular culture gesturing toward Ukraine as a cause that they're now behind They'll say something to the effect of typically, oh, yeah, we have to stand with Ukraine or support Ukraine. And stand with Ukraine is the hashtag, right? And I think that there is sort of a purposeful bit of conflation going on. I mean, most people who say stand with Ukraine probably aren't consciously conflating anything. But in practice, what they're doing is perpetrating a conflation because they're saying stand with Ukraine. And obviously, it's not even... a debatable proposition to them whether Ukraine should be stood with because I think probably what they tend to think that entails is just kind of a baseline humanitarian concern for people who have been adversely affected by the war. And there have been people, obviously, who have been adversely affected by the war, including refugees, many of whom I actually spoke to when I was in uh, Poland in uh, March. Um, so, I mean, I get that. And on a human level, you know, obviously I had sympathy for you know women who had to flee with their babies from a war zone and you know, uproot their lives. I mean, that's just common sense and just a standard moral intuition, right? But when you're talking about standing with Ukraine in the context of, say, the U.S., the U.S. political discussion or even much of Europe, it doesn't just end with that simple humanitarian concern, right? I mean, it's about a whole breadth of policy choices that are currently being made, which I think you and I probably both agree have had the effect of prolonging and even worsening the war. Um, so if one, quote, stands with Ukraine, does that also obligate one to support this latest $40 billion uh, war funding package that was just passed by the House this week? Um, does it entail supporting the entirety of the sanctions regime, which has been admitted to be geared toward inflicting maximum pain on Russian civilians, not just the government? Um, it used to be the pretension, at least on the part of the U.S. government, that their sa that sanctions were aimed at the you know top officials in a in a despised regime, but now they've actually gone full out and said that, no, the point of these current sanctions are to um, depreciate the quality of life of enough Russian citizens that you know maybe they'll do some kind of regime change. Um, does it entail supporting you know uh, any number of potentially contentious agenda items that, again, are miles away from just that uh, core uh, humanitarian concern for victims of a war. Um, and I feel like that uh, conflation is also you know, kind of reflective of what I've observed to be the prevailing tendency among these anti-woke pundits. I don't know if, you've, if you agree with that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, stand with Ukraine. I mean, it's 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 like, yeah, I mean, the you know we, you know, I think that like you can't assume that anybody wants 
Ukrainians to suffer. They want the war to go. I mean, it's actually, you can sort of assume that about the other side. I mean, there are people who just, you know, are excited by uh, Russian suffering. And you said, you know, they want the, the, the idea was that people would like get mad and overthrow Putin. I think that used, you know, that used to be the goal. I wrote an article in Newsweek about like how that wouldn't work and how everything we know about the history of sanctions, you know, say that it, if anything, it would strengthen Putin. It wouldn't lead to like his overthrow. Um, but I think people maybe were thinking that at the beginning. They're not even thinking that anymore. Um, if you're going to say, you know, what's their uh, strategy here? I think, you know, they want to they want to make the Russians basically uh, uh, unable to continue the war effort. At some point, they run out of, you know, the weapons and the uh, and the ammunition and everything else, you know, and the men and the troops and everything they need. I don't know how realistic that is. It doesn't it doesn't sound very realistic. I mean, it's a it's a massive uh Russia is a massive country, and I think you have to bet on them not being willing to uh, sacrifice all that much, which, you know, it's hard to believe that, that would be the case, given that, you know, how important um, this conflict uh, uh, is to them. Um, but yeah, there is very little. I mean, one thing, you know, that I've noticed that's very strange is like stand with Ukraine. And a lot of people are cheering on Ukraine, like things as if things are like really working out well in Ukraine right now. Like Ukraine is like, yeah, they're, I mean, they're doing much better on the battlefield, uh, than people uh, thought they would. And they've, you know, they've like, even the U S intelligence thought like, you know, Kiev would probably fall and all that. So like, you know, they, you can say, okay, Ukraine has maintained, a good portion of its country. Now, at the same time, here's another way to look at it: just something like twenty percent of the country has left um, as refugees. Another, you know, t- maybe I don't know, ten ten percent or so, fifteen percent or so are under uh, Russian control, um, and the you know the GDP of Ukraine uh, plummeted uh, by like forty five percent. It's going to estimate to have plummeted by forty five percent by the end of uh, twenty twenty two. Basically, it's cut off from it's cut off from the, uh, the the Black Sea. It's completely cut off. It's completely landlocked country that's where all everything everything it was importing was coming in, in from um so ukraine is in a the, all this standing for ukraine putting ukraine in a mid, miserable situation i mean it's hard to imagine like if nobody stood with ukraine uh things would be uh, things would be much worse i mean they, they, they could have you know they could have lost more land um un, unquestionably um but you know this is a miserable outcome for ukraine like the, the first choice you know the first thing we should have fig- we should figure out the first thing we should have done and like now we could just talk about it because it's of historical interest because we can't go back in time uh but you know but the first thing is we should have avoided the war and we should think about you know okay yeah, it was, it was putin invaded yeah yeah we can we we all know that you know putin launched uh the invasion that does not mean that nothing ukraine did or nothing uh, america did before that point um, you know, had anything to do with it. Un- unquestionably, there was a series of bad decisions um, that uh, that the U.S. made and that Ukraine made that led to this point, and the results have not been good good for Ukraine. Um, and so, you know, there's a real disconnect, I think, between like the actual humanitarian situation in Ukraine, how things have turned out for that country, um, and you know, all the all the cheering, all the cheering on we do, we we, we cheer for, we we talk about it like it's a football game like oh the ukrainians are you know had a had, you know they gained they gained some yardage you know they 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 scored they scored a touchdown they're, they're, they're winning on the battlefield and it's like yeah okay you could look at it like that but you're just completely ignoring you know the actual uh the humanitarian concerns right you're actually ignoring how most people in ukraine live. like russia and ukraine right now are fighting for like empty land right in like eastern ukraine 
And it's like, you know, none of this, none of the land in the Donetsk and uh, Luhansk, you know, besides some of the stuff on the Black Sea, yeah, but uh, the stuff that the, where the most intense fighting is going on right now, you know, it's just this stuff doesn't matter. Or maybe that, you know, that's, they matter because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just part of the war effort and the ambitions are much greater than that. But we're not even trying, like, we're not even saying, like, you know, maybe it would be a good idea to, like, negotiate away some of this territory. Like, it's, it's, it's just seen as a, um, as a, uh, uh, as sort of like a moral absolute. I mean, the Ukrainians are, are basically talking like that, that they have to push back the Russians uh, to where they were on the uh, day of the invasion. And like people say, well, it's Ukraine, it's their country, you know, that they, they, you know, we have, we, we, you know, people like, I saw David from tweet something like this. And it's, it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the government. I mean, that's the government's policy. That's the, you know, the military's policy. Uh, I don't know if that's, you know, it's not like we're having a vote and the people of Ukraine are all saying, you know, we should fight to the la- last man. I mean, the, the, a lot of, people in Ukraine are leaving and the government's having to force them to uh, stay. A lot of the Russian speakers in the East, they they like Russia. I mean, a lot of them have co- collaborated uh, with Russia and the Parts of the uh, parts of the country that Ukraine wants to get back. There's no indication that the people there um, uh, necessarily want to be part of Ukraine. So you know, we're we're thinking about you know we're standing with Ukraine. I mean, it's so ironic because I've always said with the sanction stuff, like the more American politicians are talking about standing with a country and caring about its humanitarian well-being, and you know, we talk a lot about people of Cuba, we talk about the people of Syria, the, we talk about the people of Iran. The more we care about them, the more the more we sanction them, and the more that they end up uh, suffering. Uh, so it's it's really sort of this you know this perverse uh, sort of thing where there's just you know there's just like a negative relationship between how much you care about a place and how much you care about a country. Country and you know how the people there actually end up living. Yeah, you know, in terms of looking back at the historical record, there's something that continues to stick in my craw that I don't feel we yet have the full story on. If we're talking about potential U.S. culpability, at least in contributing to the conditions that gave rise to the invasion, right? So, of course, this is not mean that one is justifying the invasion, to state the obvious. Um, However, it remains very much unclear to me uh, about uh, what, what remains unclear to me is if the U.S. exhausted all possible options to potentially avert the war, given its central role as a sort of determining party in whether the war was going to be launched. I mean, when Russia kind of delivered its ultimatums or sent its formal letter to uh, lay out its demands in December of last year, uh, the letter wasn't delivered to Zelensky. It wasn't delivered to the EU. Um, it, It was delivered to the U.S. And once that letter was received, Biden administration officials were adamant that they were not going to even entertain the possibility of acceding to one of Putin's demands that actually was consistent with what the administration was going was saying was happening anyway, which is that Ukraine was not going to formally join NATO anytime soon. Um, uh, but but even though on the one hand, you know, the Secretary of State and these other people were saying that NATO was not going to accept Ukraine as a member anytime soon, they were nonetheless unwilling you know, fervently unwilling to codify that into some kind of formal written assurance that could potentially placate Putin. Um, And we haven't really gotten any good information as to why they were so fervently committed to not providing that assurance. I mean, if they had an option, and I sort of, I discussed this on a stream last night with this guy who was basically proudly labeling himself as a uh, 
kind of expositor of the mainline sort of establishment position on these things. Um, and it was sort of interesting, because, uh, just to sort of elucidate the underlying principle of our t- t- different views, uh, I got him to admit that, you know, if in the run-up to the war he was presented with option A and option B, and uh, option A was the war is averted, option B is the war happens, but the U.S. maintains its commitment to the NATO open-door policy, uh, he would have chosen option B because he viewed that as um, superior to averting the war. And apparently the Biden administration had the same calculus. And you know, I think that ought to be noted for the historical record that you know, there was uh, one potential avenue that might have been pursued. I mean, maybe it wouldn't have averted the war ultimately, but it was at least potentially available and the Biden administration chose to forego it. Um, and, it, you know, that was the only, you know, the U.S. at that point was the only party that could have potentially made a decisive difference in changing the trajectory of the uh, military sort of escalation at that, at that time. Um, you know, when I, whenever I note it, um, people think I'm crazy. But, you know, when I've been kind of going around and I was in London recently and now I'm back in the U.S., and you know, the, the, a day or two after I uh, got back, I am just going around where I live, Jersey City, New Jersey, in the downtown area and sort of the governmental corridor at the big courthouse and at the sort of, you know, like Hudson County Administrative Building. There are these giant Ukraine flags flying <laughs> right alongside the American flag and the New Jersey flag. And it's just like... So such a strange sight, and I feel like you the strangeness funny? of that sight is not being appreciated, and it's like up to me to uh, chronicle that when I see it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a few funny things like that I've noticed. Like, so when I was at like the supermarket, uh, one of you know, one time it's like you know at the end they're like, do you want to give a dollar for like hungry people or something? And I was like, do you want to give a dollar for Ukraine? I mean, it was something completely new. Uh, the other day, I installed a Direct TV box. I should probably not pay for TV. Anymore, oh yeah, yeah. I, you sent me this. I. Uh... I kind of glossed over it, but yeah, explain that. Yeah, so I basically, I, I, you, you know how you buy you buy a box and then it turns on, or and then like the first thing that pops up is Ukrainian TV, like it looks like Ukrainian, like CNN, and it's dubbed in English for me. Um, and then above, like at the top of it, I mean, I tweeted the picture, and like at the top and below, I don't know if this is straight from Ukrainian TV or this is something like the cable company added. It's like hashtag stand with Ukraine, uh, which probably wouldn't be on Ukrainian TV. It's probably just like for American consumption. So it's dubbed in English. I mean, the other channels haven't even loaded yet. So it's like the first thing it gives you, it just pops up Ukrainian television. I mean, you're watching it when you're installing a, a you know, a direct TV box. It's really, it's really incredible. Um, I I, I kind of actually want to look into who <laughs> made the decision to make that the default setting of Directv. I mean, how how did that come about? I mean, that's sort of perversely fascinating, actually. Yeah, it is. I mean, Netflix. One other thing that was interesting. I mean, at Netflix they put together, um, you know, uh, Zelensky's old show, Servant of the People, and like just like a weeks after the Ukrainian uh, war started. And I'm actually glad because I wanted to check it out because it was like newsworthy. So this could have been like a business decision, like, oh, it's newsworthy, like Zelensky. Okay, we're gonna, you know, P- Americans are probably gonna want to see his show. But that happened really quickly. So within a few weeks, uh, Netflix, which uh, Netflix put the show on, which you know, I watched like two, three episodes for. It's it's okay. I mean, it's not like a, it's not very impressive i was just interested in watching it for like sort of the you know historical reasons um so yeah it's um it's crazy i mean the uh uh yeah i mean the the when you talk about the um the u.s um 
you know, Russia presenting its, de- uh, its demands to the U.S. and uh, uh, the U.S. really not taking it seriously. Some, we saw something like that with uh, in the Afghanistan war for a very long time. The, Talib- the, the U.S. was saying the Taliban should negotiate uh, with the Afghan government. And the Taliban was saying, like, no, you're the, like the real thing. Like, you know, the Taliban government is just a bunch of puppets. And, you know, that turned out to be uh, that turned out to be some, somewhat accurate. We saw after uh, after the U.S. left. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, something, you know, it, it, you know, like it got to the point where I don't know if it's like, you know, I don't think this was in Biden's interest in the end. I mean, I think the a lot of the economic damage that we're seeing, the gas prices, unquestionably, it's, you know, connected to this. And, you know, the economy is going to end up hurting him a lot more than any foreign policy stuff. I mean, this could potentially be uh, disastrous for, for the Democrats in 2022 and then going into 2024. Um, so, the, you know, this, this could be really this could be really bad for them. Um, and so I think, you know, it was in their own political interest to avoid the war, maybe short term. It didn't look that way because, you know, the people who are in charge of Ukraine policy are absolutely crazy. So you saw this during the, you know, the Trump impeachment, um, you know, these people like Vindman and, and the, uh, that ambassador, uh, Taylor, I mean, these people were yeah. like, you know, trying to undermine, you know, Trump's position. Uh, they were, you know, they were going up and they were just like, you know, they were just such, you know, moralists about the issue. You could listen to them like testify before Congress. And it's like, not just undermining Trump's know. position, but helping to facilitate Trump's impeachment for supposedly uh, contradicting quote unquote official U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it was clear there was actually a story like I think it was in one of the papers that said like the FBI or the uh, FBI or CIA or I think it was the FBI. Um, they started investigating the Trump campaign just because they saw him on TV. And he was like, oh, why can't we be friends with Russia? They're like, you know, this is suspicious. You know, we have to uh, we have to, you know, look into this. Um, so, it, you know, this this is, a you know, like there's a very there's sort of like a criminalization of dissent, even if you're like the president, right? Like, I mean, these, these permanent bureaucrats, uh, you know, a lot of them Trump appointed, I mean, which is funny enough, uh, you know, you know, they see the policy as sort of their domain. And I think those people, like, I don't know about Biden, like maybe Biden would have made a different choice if it was up to him. Uh, but those people unquestionably would rather have a war than, you know, than be seen as quote unquote, giving in, giving in to Putin. I mean, that's just something that, like, you know, they, they have this sort of this script in their heads, right? We are a democracy. Uh, we defend human rights. Uh, Putin is a bully who wants a sphere of influence. Um, and Ukraine is a democracy that we have to stand by. And, you know, just like, I guess, like, you know, they can't, they, they couldn't get, they, they would have tried to get, they would have tried to get Ukraine and NATO if they could. I mean, the, the, the French and the Germans weren't having it. So it's like, you're right that there was a, uh, you, uh, NATO was off the table before the war because of France and Germany. I think these people in the American government were crazy enough that they, they always wanted, you know, the hope there. And they, they you know, they hope probably one day Germany and France would have, you know, different governments and it would be much easier. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the, you know, who knows if it would have succeeded because by that time, you know, that there was, you know, interesting things going on in Ukraine and like the U.S. was like increasing defense cooperation. So, you know, you don't need to have, somebody doesn't have to be in NATO for like the U.S. to send them weapons and to like train them and stuff. So the U.S. was going down that path uh, even without NATO. Um, but NATO was symbolically important. It was symbolically important, like the ability to, you know, keeping it open was symbolically important to the U.S. It was also symbolically important uh, to from the Russian perspective. Um 
but yeah, there was just such, I mean, like, yeah, like try to avoid the war. Like, you know, that, that's, that's my, that's my humanitarian view. Try to avoid the war and like, you know, do what you can to do that. I mean, don't, uh, you know, cause they're saying that. And now the funny thing is now they're saying NATO is, is off the table anyway. I mean, that, that's like the first thing they're willing to surrender. Like Zelensky, you know, is basically all but admitting, um, the, uh, that they're not going to join NATO. I mean, Macron is saying, you know, it's, it'll be 30 years if, you know, before we can even hope, uh, Ukraine joins NATO. Um, but yeah, I mean, the extent to which this is rational and the extent to which this is just sort of bureaucrats following a script, I mean, it, it's interesting to think about. Well, I mean, Zelensky has been all over the place. He seems to have taken every side of every issue that's on the table. So yeah, there was a point at which he said something to the effect of that Ukraine is giving up on the hope of potentially joining NATO. But I think even just more recently, he seemed to have, you know, cracked the door open again. So it's impossible to say what his actual position is. You know, I think one amazing piece of context to me that actually wasn't fully apparent even to me when the war began, but once I did some research, I figured it out, <laughs> uh, is that um, in this bilateral strategic uh, partnership arrangement that the U.S. brokered last November with Ukraine that had been actually initiated under the Trump administration when they were trying to contain the fallout from the first impeachment, and then it was culminated by uh, the Biden administration last fall to have this sort of bilateral enhanced military partnership between the U.S., and Ukraine. Um, if you look at the accompanying document that was jointly signed by uh, Blinken and his counterpart in Ukraine to kind of codify this security arrangement, it actually contains a provision that's amazing and underremarked upon, which is that it makes reference to this infamous 2008 Bucharest declaration from the NATO summit that year when Cheney essentially was able to finagle into this uh, NATO manifesto that Ukraine would join the alliance. Um, and, you know, then also with, it's somewhat well known now that William Burns, who's the CIA director, was then ambassador to Russia. And he sent back a memo to Condoleezza Rice saying that, uh, look, this is a major red line for pretty much everybody in the Russian establishment, not just Putin, but also maybe some officials who are seen as slightly more friendly to the West, they all are united on viewing this as a red line, meaning the accession of, NATO, of uh, Ukraine into NATO. Um, and, you know, I, I saw sort of in the discussions about culpability for the war or just the historical run-up and NATO expansion and stuff, the reference to that 2008 declaration but I hadn't seen it commented on nearly as much that the declaration was never abandoned. It was actually reaffirmed just last November by the Biden administration. Um, so, you know, and that was, you know, maybe coincidentally, maybe not, around the time when uh, Putin apparently started mobilizing the forces of the Russian military to, uh, you know, potentially prepare for an invasion. I don't know if the two are connected, but uh, they do coincide for. Um, whatever it's worth. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, the, the fact that that's kind of just been omitted from so much of the popular understanding of the uh, run-up to the war is, uh, is striking to me. Um, you know, just on the point of uh, these uh, displays of Ukrainian solidarity in bizarre places, I talked about this on Colin when I was in uh, Paris for the uh, French election, but I don't know if... Uh, I mentioned it to you at any point. I was in, but I chose in Paris to go to what I think is the most racially diverse 
area in all of Europe, right? So there's an arrondissement of Paris that is, you know, full of people from Africa and Middle East and everywhere else. And, you know, it's, was, it went for uh, Mélenchon, the um, socialist candidate in the first round of the French election, and then ultimately did vote for Macron, but you know, uh, voter turnout decreased. Uh, but anyway, it's like the last place in, you, in the world you'd necessarily expect to have any display of pro, fervent pro-Ukraine sentiment. But then on election day, I went to the town hall, um, the town hall building, you know, which is sort of this grand sort of iconic building right next to a cathedral. And the actual voting was taking place inside that building. So that's where you go to actually physically cast your vote. And on the f- ex- front exterior of the building, <laughs> there was the French flag flying, the EU f- flag flying. And in the middle, most prominent was the Ukraine flag on the actual <laughs> voting sites. So, you know, in the U.S., this would probably, I think, potentially, maybe nowadays it wouldn't. But in theory, it could violate, you know, various local regulations that ban political uh, iconography around voting places, right? Um, but apparently that no one even had that thought in, at least in France, in this particular arrondissement, Saint-Denis. Um, and I think that there's a similar mentality here where people don't view it at all as a political statement, even though clearly what's being done <laughs> is that there are... You know, the, the, the uh, ubiquity of this flag uh, symbolism and all these other sort of displays of pro-Ukraine sentiment, they're all being marshaled toward a per- very particular political purpose, which is to <laughs> support U.S. and other governments' efforts to fund and extend and wage the war. Um, like, you're going to tell me that the, the fact that the entire Democratic Party in the House of Representatives voted in favor of $40 billion in war funding, including the whole squad, including Ro Khanna, uh, who had previously opposed lethal aid to Ukraine, etc., uh, that, you know, th- that just happened in a vacuum and has nothing to do with the dominance of this sort of cultural symbology that we're all now suffused with. Um, I think there is a, there's a stark connection. You know, but, <laughs> I did a... Um, a Substack uh, last week about this um, ad campaign that I happened across when I was in London, where at, you know in one of the most prime uh, areas for advertising real estate in the world, in London Bridge train station, uh, one day I was in there and I just see that every digital billboard is covered. And I have to say, it did appear somewhat Orwellian, uh, to use a cliched term, maybe, but every digital uh, billboard was this blue and yellow uh, Ukraine ad campaign that had actually been organized by the Ukraine government. Um, And it was just in this, you know, one of the most uh, highly traveled train stations in in central London. And so, of course, I tried to contact the advertising broker to see if I could get some details behind who was responsible for facilitating this ad campaign. And they you know, refused to basically tell me. So apparently it's under wraps. I don't know why they would be so secretive about it. And you think they would be proud in giving the details of who paid for this ad campaign, which, by the way, was also in Times Square in the same week. Um, So anyway, but there's just so much stuff like that that I feel because most of the media, most of the political class is so emotionally and ideologically and politically invested in quote-unquote standing with Ukraine that they don't even notice anything somewhat 
strange about it. Like it wouldn't even occur to them to like document some of these displays of pro-Ukraine sentiment. Like it's, they don't think it's weird for, for some reason in Jersey City, New Jersey, uh, for the central courthouse for Hudson County to be adorned with this giant flapping Ukraine flag that's bigger than the American flag. Um, and, you know, I think it in a way speaks to the kind of how strong the consensus is still around this issue, even though we do see somewhat, maybe, some maybe uh, potential glimmers of uh, more dissension among Republicans. But even then, it's still a sort of a marginal faction. Yeah, there's uh, you know, the, the, there, you know, there's this money floating around, and it's it's mostly you know from the U.S. and the U.K. I mean, they build their own propaganda outfits whenever there's a you know they they build their own propaganda campaigns whenever there's a uh, uh, whenever there's like a foreign policy priority, right? So like the uh, the you know the U.S. basically built Ahmed Chalabi and the you know and the uh, and these people in the Iraqi National Congress who basically ended up uh, talking us into going to war with. Uh, with Iraq, um, the, there's been a lot of money floating around. There, there, there was a uh, you know some uh, leaked documents about the British PR campaign in Syria, and Russia was not at you know uh, Britain, you know the UK was not at war with Syria, but still, I mean, the, basically that the uh, you know the uh, the government the government's money was shaping the PR campaign and how people saw the uh, saw the conflict. So I you know I talked to uh, some people in Washington right now who say that the Ukraine money, I mean like if you know if you're just a regular, you know, influencer or op-ed writer, I mean Ukraine, you know, Ukraine or uh, you know Ukraine uh, supporters will just throw hundreds of thousands of dollars at you to basically do nothing. I mean it's really it's a really uh, the marketplace of ideas. Wait, 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 wait. Hold, hold on, hold on a second. Explain that a little bit. You're saying you spoke to people in Washington who were reporting to you that these pro-Ukraine moneyed interests are giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to people to do basically nothing, but maybe like write an op-ed here and there. Like what, what are you talking about? Yeah. Write op-eds, be on Twitter, basically lobby. I mean, this is how a lot of Washington works. I mean, a lot of op-ed writing is like basically people, uh, uh, you know, some corporation has some interest or some uh, yeah, yeah. somebody with money has an, has an interest. And yeah, the, you know, I heard from a, a friend who said, Right now, you know, the, 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 like the basically the suddenness, like the money and like how much money and like the oversight of the money, like what they expect you to actually do with it. You know, like different clients will have like, oh, you got to write this many op-eds or it's got to be in this, you know, good of a publication or or you got to be this much of an influencer for us to pay you. You know, there's usually some standard uh, that's like gone by the wayside. It's basically, you know, there's just money out there and they're just throwing it at anybody who will uh, who will be pro-Ukraine. And people people want to be, you know, people want to. It's not like people don't want to be pro-Ukraine anyway. I mean, people are genuinely uh caught up in this stuff um well just 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 to note uh in 2021 for the first time ukraine overtook saudi arabia as the number one uh spender of uh lobbying money in washington (laughs) by a foreign government just you know the saudi arabia thing is the Saudi Arabia thing is funny because I remember like four years ago, I was at the checkout counter in the supermarket and you know where like they have like the National Enquirer and like People Magazine and stuff. And there was just like this like glossy, like very professional spread, you know, about the uh, about uh, I think it was um, uh, MBS, uh, Mohammed bin Salman um, or it was some Saudi. It was some Saudi world. I, it must have been MBS. And basically it was just like, you know, you know how they do these things like it's like the first ladies. Like I saw one the other day, first ladies of the United States and had like, you know, pictures of the first ladies. You know, it's just like the most, ba- you know, the stuff that they put they put in front of you, like, you know, when you're just checking out like next to the gum. So it's like, you know, it's an impulse buy. It's just for like, you know, people who are just I don't know, like you have to go off to be pretty, you know, it's like it's like low IQ, it's like low IQ material. It's like, yeah, yeah. Or, like, or like they'll have like founding fathers ones for the men or World War II yeah. history. 
Exactly. Yeah. The most, you know, generic stuff. And yeah, there was just this very glossy look like like the most highly produced things that they had just on Mohammed bin Salman. And you figure, you know, how much does that cost to get that like on the, you know, on the newsstand, like next to the National Enquirer? I mean, so yeah, the Saudi thing is impressive. Ukraine is, you know, I'm not surprised that Ukraine is surpassing that. And often they're rich countries like, you know, like the Saudis that do this. I mean, Ukraine is like, doesn't have money right now. <laughs> so it's obviously, you know, it's, it's from a roundabout way. It's coming from uh, America and Europe, right? It's not coming from Ukraine, which was very poor to start with. And now is even uh, in worse shape. I mean, Ukraine is not even, it's barely uh, able to maintain social services. It has a, a fuel shortage at this point. So it's not, you know, Ukraine's money uh, mostly that's directly do, that's directly doing this. It's also the, the there's a, you know, a lot of the PR firms in Washington have like promised to do this for free. And, you know, it's like they do, you know, like whenever there's a current thing, like, you know, people will become true believers. They'll do things for, they'll do things for free, like, you know, pro bono for like BLM writers, um, which was the thing a few years ago. Um, and, you know, who knows, maybe they think there's some like, you know, PR benefit to themselves for, uh, for doing that. Uh, so it's really, I mean, it really is just a, um, you know, it really is just sort of a crazy environment. And it's not like, you know, when, when on most issues, there's like a conservative press and like a liberal press, right? So you can like, like, there'll be inconvenient facts. So like liberals will like ignore something and conservatives will point, you know, this out or conservatives will uh, ignore something that liberals want to point out. And you'll sort of get that balance. So it's sort of like, a, it's like a, uh, it's like a courtroom where like, you know, there's a prosecution and defense and each is pointing out the best points that they have. Um, but this is like a courtroom, like a public opinion where like the judge and the prosecution and the defense and like the jury are are all on the same side so it's really a, you know if you want to just say anything different it's really is it's sort of hopeless at this point yeah so what is your impression of where we are currently in this sort of uh, you know escalatory cycle um so you know my sort of guiding <laughs> uh principle for now a couple of months is that on any given week, you know, what the U.S. government announces is not that it's undertaking any kind of new diplomatic initiative or trying to pursue some new negotiated uh, means of achieving a negotiated settlement, but they're basically just escalating their military commitment to the war. I mean, that's what they announced, not anything to do with diplomacy. And so, you know, this week, of course, we had the $40 billion in uh, new war funding that was approved by the House. And it seems like it's going to get signed into law probably next week after, uh, you know, Rand Paul is surmounted as an obstacle. Um, you had Biden signing into law on Monday this Lend-Lease bill, which, I mean, maybe I'm crazy, but it just strikes me as absurd that there's been almost no discussion about the implications of how – the U.S. has now revived the mechanism that it first implemented in the run-up to its entry into World War II for the first time in 75 years. Um, uh, you know, it seems like the fervency of the commitment ke- continues to uh, intensify, you know, militarily and uh, financially in, uh, on, in the U.S. toward Ukraine. Um, so, um, you know, wh- what do you think is the cur- current lay of the land in that sense? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's three ways to, you know, sort of think about what's going to happen. So there's like, you know, indefinite stalemate. So this is like what happened in 2014 um, after, uh, you know, the, uh, the the initial fighting between the uh, Ukrainians and the Russians, uh, the you know, the separatists in the east. Um, and so that, you know, that can go on for a while. Um, and maybe that goes on indefinitely. I mean, you have with... Uh, you know, it's hard to imagine actually that going on indefinitely because it's not like Korea um, where like you have a clear line 
like it's internationally accepted. So it's like, you know, the fact that it's so messy, I mean, makes that difficult. Um, you know, you could, so, you know, one side is going to get, you know, the advantage, I think one side is going to end up getting the advantage at some point. Um, I don't know, you know, which side it is. It's like, I, I could see the case for, you know, either way, Ukraine has an unlimited, uh, basically unlimited supply of, uh, uh, weapons and support from the outside coming in. You know, Russia, I mean, has a, um, uh, you know, but Ukraine also has a, um, you know, they're econo- economically being crushed and whether the support from the West can make up for that, you know, probably can. It's going to be miserable. It's going to be miserable for them for, you know, the longer this goes. Uh, but, you know, the, you know, the question is, like, does it, you know, so you might, you might be in a situation where you might have a battlefield which favors the defense, which means that, like, you know, the whichever side holds territory, it's very hard to, uh, it's hard to displace, uh, it's hard to displace them. Um, and so, like, the war sort of looks like that, and, like, Russia, like, seized all these areas, like, pretty quickly, but then couldn't really seize anything else, and the Ukraine can't really take anything back. So if there's, you know, I guess that's the case, and I, I guess I'm contradicting what I just said, because that's the case for uh, something like a permanent st- uh, stalemate, which I think is not a good, not sustainable for, that's, like, bad for Russia. Russia will be... Uh, uh, Russia will be, you know, not integrated in the global economy. It'll have, you know, it'll have this cost of this war. But Ukraine, it'll be much worse because Ukraine is just completely cut off, you know, from the uh, as completely la- as a completely landlocked country. I mean, it does. It's, it was already poor to start with, uh, but the refugees are going to keep flowing out, so it's going to have, you know, a shrinking and shrinking population. Um, and so this is, you know, and so, you know, this, you know, the, so this, the stalemates, the stalemate is it's hard to. You know, even 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 with the um, even if the defense is really the advantage here, you know, the stalemate is hard to is hard to picture. I mean, eventually Ukraine just uh, empties of, empties of people, and some people think you know that there's a uh, there's a pessimistic uh, case for uh, uh, on the Russian side for them, uh, and that's you know that basically they can't stay that they, they lack the manpower and they're going to have to escalate by uh, uh, like you know generally mobilizing or declaring a state of war, which they're not doing right now, and maybe they can't afford it too. You know, it's more costly for Ukraine, but Russia, um, uh, but they have you know endless support while Russia doesn't and maybe doesn't want to sacrifice as much. Um, I think. If Russia gets the advantage um, on the battlefield, if there's some breakthrough or something for Russia, I, you know, so if Ukraine has the breakthrough, I, you know, it, it's, it's, Russia still has some escalatory options. And like you said, I, they can officially declare war. I mean, they can use nukes. I think that's an underrated, you know, uh, underrated possibility right now. But like, you know, if the choice becomes between that and actually, you know, losing the war and being humiliated, it's a bad situation. So you have a, you have a terrible escalatory pressure. Um, if Ukraine gains the advantage, it starts actually making gains. Uh, if Russia starts making it gains, you also have this escalatory pressure because Ukraine is such a current thing. And it's like, you know, it's, it's just about, you know, it's just about, uh, it's, it's still sort of, there's intense emotions around it, even though not much is happening, not much uh, territory is changing hands on the battlefield. Um, but if, you know, Russia, like, you know, goes forward and actually gets, uh, gets more territory, um, yeah, I, I don't know what more the U.S. can do. I think they just keep trying to bleed Russia dry. I think sort of emotion and, uh, uh, you know, the ideology of uh, of uh, uh, the foreign policy elite sort of requires that. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is going this is going to a bad place. I don't know which side is going to get the advantage, but I think, you know, the, the, the potential for escalation is high and the potential for a very, very long drawn out war is also, you know, very high, too. 
Yeah, I guess I was more thinking about the escalatory trajectory as it relates to the U.S. Um, because it seems like from the U.S. standpoint, everything it does is not geared toward de-escalation. It's geared toward escalation. I just gave you know some examples of what happened just this past week. And then, of course, last week we had these revelations in the New York Times with senior officials in the Biden administration leaking that – you know, U.S. intelligence was integral in these kind of marquee combat operations with the sinking of the flagship uh, Russian ship and even potentially the killing of Russian generals. Um, you know, obviously, you know, with, with the $40 billion that's now been allocated, that uh, invests the U.S. for the longer haul in the conflict. Um, and, you know, there's always rumors about you know, Poland having some kind of harebrained idea to launch a peacekeeping mission in the western in Western Ukraine, which could potentially give rise to a situation where, you know, the U.S. has to come to its defense as a NATO member state. Um, uh, there was a bizarrely unhinged op-ed that I tweeted earlier today that was published in the Telegraph by the Prime Minister of Poland, where he's saying that Putin is actually worse than Stalin and Hitler combined, and that the entire, this new ideology that Putin has brought into life needs to be, quote, rooted out. I don't know what this Prime Minister of Poland exactly means by that, Um, but, you know, clearly there's been this desire on the part of the Polish government to kind of go the U.S. into taking more aggressive uh, steps. Um, so I, I guess that's all to say that there, are, there seems like there's avenues of escalation on the from a U.S. perspective that are still uh, underappreciated. I was just sort of reading today a little bit about just to refresh my memory of the uh, early phases of the Vietnam War, so, you know, under Eisenhower. Um, when, you know, the beginnings of that war, uh, you know, when back when Eisenhower was saying that he was unwilling to send combat troops into South Vietnam, um, uh, the early phases of that war were marked by uh, Eisenhower providing so-called security assistance to, to, the, to the South Vietnamese along with, you know, quote-unquote trainers or, uh, and you know, I think we should probably bear in mind, especially given that the joint chief, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Milley, in March, came out and said that he is of the belief that the war could go on for years. We should be mindful that this has only been really happening in earnest for two and a half months. And, you know, it's not possible to foresee something down the line happening which could occasion much more, you know, overt U.S. or NATO Intervention. I don't think. I think sort of the whole debate around the no-fly zone, almost in retrospect, was sort of a distraction, because then it sort of gave license to Biden to say, you know, because I'm at least rhetorically claiming that I'm averse to starting World War III, which a no-fly zone would do, that anything he does short of that is not perceived as unduly escalatory, right? So he can he can send higher and higher grade weaponry with each with each passing week, whether it's tanks or heavy artillery or howitzers or all this. Um, and nobody perceives that as a troubling escalation because it's not the World War III scenario, which is like, you know, the worst possible scenario. Um, so, yeah, just, uh, you know, I don't want to, I'm not trying to, I'm not positing any conspiracy people. Uh, but, you know, Gulf of Tonkin incident. Could Eisenhower or uh, others who were in the U.S. sort of foreign policy orbit 
in the late in the late fifties um, have predicted the Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, not long, you know, a few years thereafter, which obviously then precipitated Johnson uh, launch escalating the war. Ernest, you know, there's just a whole bunch of scenarios here that I think people are not mindful of, and every policy step being taken. It goes further and further in that direction, um, and we're even at the point now where you know we're re-implementing World War II era arms provision mechanisms, and you know people are just very blasé about it. It's just uh, strange. Yeah, I mean, so it's you know the question is how. So yeah, I wonder. I wonder if there is a limit. I mean, forty. We're giving forty million. It's only been a few months. You know, billion the, with you, uh, or forty billion, right? You're right. Yeah, billion. Uh, the U.S. defense budget is you know seven eight hundred billion a year. So that's like five percent of the defense budget in uh, giving to Ukraine um, in the first few months of the war. Is that sustainable? Is it sustainable that you end up with like you know fifty percent of the defense budget in a year? Um, uh, in addition to what we're already defend, uh, spending on defense going to Ukraine, I don't know. I mean, the you know the optimistic scenario is that we do all this, like the economy, you know, continues to do badly. Um, you know, the like eventually people like care less about Ukraine. I have noticed, like, you know, it's still crazy. It's still a crazy current thing, but it's less than it was like, you know, three weeks ago or a month ago. The there's things on the New York, like used to go to the New York Times and Washington Post, and all it would be about updates on uh, what's going on in Ukraine. Yeah, I think and I think the, the New York Times for like two months straight had the big bold headline on its homepage that was related to Ukraine. I mean, they, with the larger size font. I, I, that might have been a, a record. I don't think they reduced the size of that font for like two months. Yeah. So yeah. So that, that's that, that, that's right. So I think there's, um, you know, I, so that's the you know that's the optimistic center. Now, like it's like you know what can you do as far as um, escalate besides keep sending weapons? Like you know, I have a I have a view that you know Biden, you know, he's not is not crazy. He's because he's been pretty. You know, he's 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 uh, he was. He he's willing to push back against foreign policy consensus. Not that he's been particularly brave or far sighted uh, when it comes to Russia or Ukraine policy. He's really gone with the flow. Um, but we don't have a complete crazy person in the White House the way we would have say you know John McCain or, or Lindsey Graham was uh, was was president. Um, so that reassures me a little bit. It's like he can well, be I mean, into stuff. I mean, just to yeah, quickly push back on that somewhat. I I agree with you that he's less. You know, a few orders of magnitude less crazy than a Graham or a McCain. But, you know, I think it was actually fairly crazy and maybe indicative of his lack of control or whatever the true explanation for why this happened. But, you know, I keep coming back to that Warsaw speech at the end of March, where at the climax of the speech, and, you know, one of his signature speeches at that point of his presidency on a foreign capital, the, the, the climax of it, he calls for essentially regime change in Russia. Um, says Putin must go or something to that effect. And, you know, he's gone much further rhetorically in personalized antipathy for Putin than had ever really been the norm over the course of the Cold War with the Soviet Union, you know, accusing him of genocide, saying he's a war criminal, yeah. needs to be put on trial, this sort of thing. So, you know, even if he's not as sort of outlandishly, blitheringly crazy as a Lindsey Graham, um, you know, I don't think that, again, that's sort of a low bar to clear. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think yeah, I think there's something to that. So somebody once described Biden as like if you look at his voting record or you look at his policy position, he's always exactly in the middle of wherever the Democratic uh, Party is. So he was like, you know, like against like school busing in like the late 1970s, right? And then he was like, you know, a normal Democrat for a while, a foreign policy hawk in like the post 9/11 era. Yeah, um, he was for the Iraq War, and then like you know a year or two later when public opinion shifted, he was sort of nominally more against it, you know, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. So it's um, so so. What's the center of the Democratic Party right now? It's uh, you know Putler. It's a Putin is you know Hitler, Stalin, uh, you know homophobe, everything you know all that combined. Um, and so Biden, you know, gets swept up in that. Um, and so I guess the question is, does do you does that intensity remain? Uh, among you know Democrat among democratic uh, politicians and liberal elites because if if they move on it Biden moves with them I think I think the guy is very uh, he's a very social guy who's very capable of convincing himself whatever people happen to believe at the moment that's good for him politically is you know what he what he really believes uh, so yeah I mean. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not going to get a, he's going to at least be political enough to care about his own interests. Like, I think that the political hurt of this, I think, is much higher than people uh, would have expected. I mean, the, uh, uh, the economy, you know, they want to blame it on, uh, you know, the, the, you know, they don't want to blame it on inflation. They don't want to blame it on the government spending either, because that's the other, uh, you know, that's the other theory of what's going wrong. And so they don't want to, you know, they want to direct it to, uh, Russia, but like you can't just keep blaming Russia because people like you know expect the president and uh, their leaders to actually do something about this. Uh, so maybe poli- I mean maybe politics saves us. I mean maybe you get gridlock in Washington D.C. I was actually very surprised. I mean people talk about this like anti-war thing coming up in the Republican Party. I went back at one point and I did a tweet thread on this where I looked at like every major vote on like some foreign policy thing. So like when they wanted to condemn. Uh, Trump for like uh, for pulling out of Syria, like Republicans were worse than Democrats, even though it was Trump, and you know they all worship Trump. I mean, the Republicans were still more for condemning, uh, you know, any withdrawal from Syria. Oh yeah, because you know, because Mitch McConnell instigated that, so you know, he maintained he's you know maintains discipline, I guess, within the Republican caucus. Although I'm sure there are also plenty of true believers that would have voted for it anyway. Meaning that condemnation of Trump's apparent desire to withdraw from Syria that never came to pass. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so it's, uh, so it's, um, uh, so yeah, it's, so, uh, but this vote, this vote, I mean, uh, 57 Republicans, you know, like a quarter of the party, which is, uh, which is, uh, you know, much more than any other kind of uh, foreign policy vote, uh, was against, um, came out against this uh, funding thing for, for Ukraine. I mean, so this is the first thing I, I've, I've been paying attention to when I looked at the votes where Republicans were more anti-war than the Democrats. It's usually been a myth that the Republicans have become anti-war. Um, you know, the Democrats, they have the squad and they have some very left-wing people who are always anti-war. While the people like Rand Paul and the Republican Party and like Matt Gates, you know, they're pretty few and far, they're pretty few and far between. But now there seems to be a real constituency um, here um and you know so yeah so, is it a real constituency though or is it sort of this opportunistic way to signal disapproval of biden like i don't think i'll i i looked at most of the statements of the republican members of congress who voted in that 57 to oppose the bill and i would guess that probably around at least half of them didn't oppose sending arms to Ukraine on principle. And there was one congressman whose name escapes me now who said that his vote should be interpreted merely as a 
vote of no confidence against the Biden administration to you know, competently execute the provision of the aid. And, you know, some people didn't like how the bill was rushed. You know, for example, Congressman Chip Roy, who is this Republican from Texas, ended up voting no on the bill. Uh, and he complained in a floor speech ahead of the vote that the bill was only delivered to them by House leadership at 3 p.m. on Monday, and then they were forced to vote by around 9 p.m. And, you know, that's a legitimate issue to raise. I mean, because clearly Congress basically just acts as this top-down sort of uh, fiefdom that the leadership unilaterally runs. Uh, but, you know, when I uh, asked... Chip, because Chip Roy's communications director sort of, uh, you know, he retweeted uh, something that I sent quoting Chip Roy. So I asked the communications director, you know, was Chip Roy's vote uh, on principle against the provision of arms to Ukraine, or was it technical or procedural? And he told me it was procedural. Um, so you know, I wouldn't, even though that th- th- there were fifty-seven votes, and that's far more that can be said of the Democrats, where you have, you know farcical situations like Cory Bush, who was this, you know, uh, Ferguson, Missouri active street activist in 2014, now claiming to be really passionately committed to sending weapons to Ukraine um, and voting yes on the bill. Uh, I, I also wouldn't overstate how much of a genuine shift is portended by that 57 figure on the part of the Republicans who did vote no. Yeah, that, that, that's fair. I mean, the, um, you know, my, my, you know, my reading of the, you know, when I've been looking back at votes, it usually, you know, you would think like this partisanship would be more, but like actual getting Republicans to like vote against war in any context, like you would think that like, oh, during Obama, um, you know, uh, during the Obama uh, uh, the administration, like you would have think that maybe they would have voted for more pro-civil liberties on the Patriot Act stuff just to like signal disapproval of Obama. And it's like, nope, you know, Republicans, just their their, their love of war um, and their love of violating civil liberties is always ahead of their, has been ahead of their partisanship. Maybe if now their partisanship uh, or their procedural concerns or whatever are ahead of their, uh, their love of war, I mean, that itself could be uh, progress or at least some portion uh, of the Republican, of some portion of the Republican caucus. Uh, so yeah, I think you know. I think you're. I think you're right that we, we shouldn't read too much into that. It's a very. You know, it's it's just interesting. It's I'm talking more about the direction, as uh, uh, rather than uh, uh, rather than something more solid. I mean, but you do see. I mean, you see Tucker Carlson, who's uh, who's uh, you know criticizing this stuff. I mean, you do see like JD Vance just won the primary, who's been probably uh, you know more anti AT Ukraine than you know any any sitting Republican senator. Has he reiterated that position since he won the primary? Because the only comment that I'm aware of where he that's he's now being attacked for by his opponent tim ryan who's like incredibly zealous in his pro-ukraine fervor um was when jd vance was on newsmax in february or something and said you know to be frank i don't really care that much what happens to ukraine one way or another i mean do you know if he's reiterated that position since or because my my guess is that he's going to be you know uh reprimanded by the uh, National Republican uh, Senate Campaign Committee or whatever to kind of keep that to a minimum in the general election period. So he has a tweet from a day ago where it's a it's a Tucker. He's posting a Tucker video and he's saying Tim Ryan is pushing billions in foreign aid while the communities he serves in Congress have been decimated. So, yeah, he's still, you know, opposed to 
uh, four and eight, I guess, uh, which I think means Ukraine. I haven't, and it looks like I can't watch the video. Well, now, that's sort of like, like a lawyerly constructed tweet. I mean, because there are four potentially components of the funding bill this week that you could characterize as mere but, aid, uh, and other yeah. parts that are the the military funding. So, this, is he referring to the military funding as well? I'm not sure. That would have to be clarified. Well, it's uh, there's a video. Well, it's attached to a video of a Tucker. Uh, of a Tucker segment, and the Tucker segment says uh, "war machine" in like the uh, you know the graphic. So, looks, I, you know, I guess I'm guessing if I push on this, it's gonna say it's gonna be Tucker criticizing uh, uh, sending military to Ukraine. No, I, I think JD, I think JD is uh, 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 sincere in the things he believes, in, so I would I would have expected that he'll moderate. I mean, he you know he's not gonna talk like completely off the cuff, but I you know I, I expect this to be a uh, I think this is a uh, legitimate belief of his. Okay, you know, maybe so. You know, if if uh, the Republican senator from Ohio is now going to be J.D. Vance instead of uh, Rob Portman, that actually is a genuine shift, more than likely in at least the foreign policy domain, because you know Rob Portman is one of these gung ho kind of Bush Republicans on pretty much every foreign policy issue. Um, I, I don't know if most people are aware of this, but it's interesting from a historical standpoint, that when Lend-Lease was debated, I'm going to write a piece about this in the couple, next couple of days um, on Substack, but uh, when Lend-Lease was first being deliberated in 1940 and 1941, it was hugely controversial. I mean, you had massive opposition to it uh, amongst all kinds of political groups, and it spanned the partisan spectrum, actually. Uh, religious groups came out against it, uh, intellectuals and activists and all this. And the final vote on Lend-Lease, uh, which at that point was just to uh, Great Britain in March of 1941, um, it, uh, 31 senators voted against it and 165 uh, members of the House. So it wasn't like this... You know, people might have this this assumption that, of course, you know, if, uh, Lend-Lease and the run-up to World War II was this, like, uniformly agreed-upon policy, but it wasn't. It was actually immensely controversial. In fact, it was more controversial than this current iteration of Lend-Lease, which passed the Senate unanimously. So everybody from Rand Paul to Bernie Sanders backed Lend-Lease uh, on behalf of Ukraine. Um, yeah. So uh, let's go to... Uh, Questions now. I want to just point out that I posted right before we started a um, a new Substack. Probably not the best time to do on a Friday afternoon, but what are you going to do? It was my uh, workflow, and um, uh, you know, maybe we could talk about it at a later time once you're able to read it. But essentially, I, just in a brief summary, uh, a couple of weeks ago there was a clip going around of a rally that took place in uh, um, Lower Manhattan. Uh, this was April 26th, where one of these newly formed pro-Ukraine groups was holding one of its regular rallies. And this uh, journalist who was on the scene got a video clip of the attendees chanting, Azov, Azov, Azov. So, like, uh, <laughs> emphatically expressing support for the Azov battalion, right? And... You know, I'm not one who runs around histrionically screaming about the danger of Nazis because particularly in the U.S. over the past couple of years, the uh, el- elasticity of that term has been abused enormously so that everybody who's like slightly more right-wing than Mitt Romney can be accused of being a Nazi. And, you know, I've myself have been accused of a Nazi, being a Nazi plenty of times. Uh, that said... <laughs> 
if we're going by the standards that would typically be applied by the media in terms of when somebody can be characterized as a Nazi, I'm pretty sure the Azov Battalion meets that criteria. I mean, just over the course of this war, there's been ample evidence accumulated showing that on their uniforms they have insignia proudly brandished, such as the uh, this black sun or the wolf's angel or these classic neo-Nazi uh, symbols. And actually, if you look at the uh, Anti-Defamation League's database on its website, even now, where it lists all these supposed hate symbols, um, all these Azov uh, symbols are currently on the Anti-Defamation League's list of Nazi symbols. Um, so, you know, because groups like the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, or the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, were so adamant over the course of the Trump years to be vigorously monitoring any sign that there was like uh, Nazis on the march in the U.S. And, you know, they went absolutely berserk over Charlottesville in 2017. And, you know, they poured giant resources into basically becoming full-time so-called Nazi monitoring operations with the idea being that Trump was emboldening the Nazis. Um, uh, this was their number one of their top pursuits along with, you know, the kind of related purported trends around the surge in white nationalism or whatever. Um, so, you know, when I saw that clip from the streets of America where this pro-Nazi rally had, had broken out, the thought immediately occurred to me, okay, well, you know, given their track records, surely the ADL and the Southern Poverty Law Center will be quick to issue a statement denouncing this, given how you know, incredibly concerned they've been for the past several years about Nazis becoming a supposedly formidable political force in the U.S. So, you know, I sent the queries out to their <laughs> communications departments, and uh, uh, with the Southern Poverty Law Center, you know, their communications consultant said, oh, yeah, thanks for reaching out. We'll get back to you soon. So I gave them a day and another day and another day and another day, and they stopped replying to me. So no no statement coming from the Southern Poverty Law Center. And uh, I, then I did the same for the ADL, and uh, I, you know, I have the quote in the article, but basically the communications director said, sorry, we're not going to have a comment on this. Well, it's just like, okay, well, well, why? I mean, that's sort of fascinating, isn't it? Why wouldn't they have a comment on it? Well, I mean, I think the reason is pretty obvious because the uh, narrative that is now paramount is no longer being hysterical about any signs that potentially Nazis are uh, ascendant in the U.S., but the paramount narrative is standing with Ukraine, and anything that might kind of undermine that is verbose. So yeah, I mean that's that's basically, and I got talk. You know, it's a it's a pretty long article actually. So there's more to it than that. But you should uh, take a look. I actually haven't tweeted it yet. But if you're hopefully you're a sub subscriber, so you got it in your inbox. But um, yeah. So uh, I don't know, Richard, if you have any uh, thoughts on that, and then we'll go quickly to uh, to calls. Uh, not really. No, these these groups have been um, you know not very selective in who they call racists and who they call Nazis. I had a friend, a Jewish friend, who's one of, you know, he's a very obsessed with anti-Semitism. He got mad at somebody tweeted something and he sent like a complaint to the ADL. And like, if you sent any, if you sent any complaint to the ADL, like I could just email them right now and say, like Tracy did something anti-Semitic. They give you like a case number and like follow through. So it's like, they're very, you know, they're very, you should do that actually. I'm, 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 I grant you permission to send the complaint. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to just report your sub stack and they'll give me a case number. They'll follow up with me. So they're, they're very thorough, but yeah, this situation. No, not so much. 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, so let's go to some callers. Uh, right. Uh, Sean, you are up. So thanks for having this conversation. Um, it's getting a little scarier and scarier to be open with these kinds of point of points of views with stuff like a ministry of truth on the horizon. So thank you guys. Um, in response to your article, Michael, I've read it. Um, but I mean, we all know how, uh, APAC works. Um, now that there's been all these millions and billions of dollars funded or uh, funneled to Ukraine, um, I mean, people get bought off. That's, that's capitalism. Um, pretty simple. But I, I have uh, one point to make. That uh, Sean, I think your connection is a little screwy. I don't know if that's just me. Richard, can you hear him? Uh, no, he's cutting in and out. Okay. Um, I have one, one point to make. Bro. Okay, yeah, I can hear you. Go ahead. Um, Joe Biden clearly has dementia. And he, we had an unelected body or, or person running the most powerful branch of government that can basically just unilaterally go to war whenever they want um, and can launch nukes. And I think people need to start making this point. I mean, all this stuff about like horse race politics, like we don't have a democracy. Um, you know, you can pretty much predict every election for like 90%. Okay, uh, Sean. I, Sean, I just, Sean, I just removed you not because I wanted to interrupt you because I think we got the probably the gist of what you were, the point you were making, and your connection is not so good. So no, no offense intended, but yeah, I mean, in terms of whether Biden has dementia, I mean, obviously I can't diagnose that, but it's plain for everybody to see that his cognitive abilities have um, <laughs> diminished markedly over the years. You know, I thought actually in 2020 during the primaries when the point about his mental acuity would be raised uh, by his opponents, I thought they would be overstating it a bit because although Biden was slower than he had been earlier in his life and, you know, less um, coherent at times, I didn't think it was so um, crippling or anything that it would somehow jeopardize his ability to win the Democratic nomination and potentially the presidency, even as fixated on that as people were. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe he could just stick it out and just be at, uh, you know, half capacity or something and it's fine. But I think where it actually is really significant potentially is on this diplomatic front because on, uh, you know, especially if you're in this tinderbox situation with Russia and there's nuclear brinksmanship happening um, and you actually need a um, adroit president to be at the helm of whatever negotiations might be on the offing, then to not be at full capacity is a real liability. Um, you know, in the, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, Kennedy was in his 40s, very lucid and intelligent, whatever else you might think of him. And um, ultimately, he was able to broker that secret deal to remove the missiles, the U.S. missiles from Turkey and, and end the crisis. Um, I'm not sure if Biden has the the mental wherewithal to 
do something akin to that now, notwithstanding that he's already sort of poisoned the well with Putin by calling him a genocide committer and all this where maybe negotiations couldn't happen anyway. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of like the, uh, the, the two-way dialogues that you would expect and need a president to be able to undertake in a fraught period like this, um, maybe just Biden doesn't have it in him, which, yeah, I think is actually a very dangerous situation. Potentially, you know, it's sort of ironic, this idea of invoking the 25th Amendment constantly came up over the course of uh, Trump's presidency, either because they thought he was crazy or that he was compromised by Russia or some combination of the two. Um, but, you know, in terms of just sheer mental ability, it seems like Biden is pretty much <laughs> much more of a risk on that score than, than Trump was. And yet, uh, nobody really mentions the 25th Amendment. I me hear a couple of Republicans kind of faintly bring it up now and then, but it, nobody thinks it's a realistic possibility. Whereas during the Trump administration, there actually were senior officials who contemplated it. I, mean, I think Rod Rosenstein, who is the uh, interim um, uh, head of the Department of Justice when the Mueller investigation was launched, I mean, who authorized the launch of the Mueller investigation, he personally... Invest, uh, tried to pursue invoking the 25th Amendment against Trump, and there were you know, n- numerous episodes of this. Uh, but yeah, I mean now, it's, but now the stakes seem actually vastly higher, and it's not even entertained as anything that could be tenable. So um, yeah, I actually do think it's an issue. Although I don't know what is really gained by saying Biden has dementia, because you know I kind of am annoyed about this genre of punditry when people think they can make a armchair clinical diagnosis of somebody. Yeah, he's uh, certainly slowed down. Um, and, you know, this is going to be true for anyone at his age. I mean, it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a thing about politics where, like, you have these guys in their 70s and 80s with, you know, look at, uh, look at Pelosi and McConnell, too. And, like, you know, it's like nowhere else in life are the highest performing mental people. You know, look at Fortune 500 CEOs. They're not, they're not 80 years old, generally. Um, and so this is going to be an issue just about anybody at that age. I mean, you, your brain deteriorates as you as you age. You're 80. I mean, you're not on top of your game. Um, and you'd hopefully that you'd, you'd hope the president would be. Uh, unfortunately, that's usually not the case. Yeah, you know, I've, uh, I've I've wondered how much of the current sort of orientation of U.S. policy vis-a-vis Russia is related to the fact that the entire political leadership class in the U.S. in the national government anyway is geriatric. So they're, they're, you know, they came of age during the Cold War and they haven't shed that, those beliefs about it, you know, from Biden to um, uh, Pelosi, who's, uh, I think, 81, uh, the House majority, I mean, the, it's, it's amazing. The Speaker of the House for the Democratic Party is, uh, I think, 81, Pelosi, or I think maybe she's 80. The um, House Majority Leader, Steny Hoyer, who's, you know, been integral in a lot of the policy movement on Ukraine stuff, is 82. Um, Jim Clyburn, you know, who was uh, heralded as the savior for Biden during the primaries, um, he's the House Majority Whip. He's 81. So, I mean, you actually have, have a literally geriatric House leadership on the part of the Democrats anyway. Um, and then, you know, um, Schumer is uh, in his 70s and McConnell is also uh, 80. So, like, I mean, <laughs> I, it's hard to be too sure if that has some sort of causal connection between how the policy dimension of all this has unfolded. But it seems like it's plausible to me. 
Yes, it seems plausible. I mean, the but the bigger thing is that I mean, they're you know, it's just that they're they they can't be on top of it. I mean, there's just no way. I mean, the average CEO is uh, four to five hundred companies in his fifties. I mean, the you know, and the average leader of our country is like in the eighties. I mean, that's twenty that's a twenty three year difference. I mean, you know, even if they have cold war nostalgia, like you know, they, they these people don't know what the internet is. I mean, in a lot of cases, so it's uh, yeah. I mean, we we have a, we have a problem here with I think uh, yeah, geriatric political class. Uh, okay, let's go to uh, Ali or H. Ali. Yeah, uh, can you hear me well? Yep, yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm calling from Sweden. Uh, oh, we've spoken before, um, haven't we? No, actually not. Oh, really? Okay. I, sorry. Because <laughs> he's some other Iron Swede. Uh, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, sorry. Uh, yeah, I saw you agreed on some things on Twitter yesterday about Sweden and Finland joining NATO and something about subsidizing whatever and this Finnish guy was um, <laughs> angered by that and made some comment about um, agency and uh, arrogant Westerners which I don't know I mean Finland is part of the Western world. Yeah, yeah just, so, just so people understand, there was a Finnish guy you know, who attacked me in this sarcastic way as an arrogant Western I don't know supremacist or something. I didn't even know exactly what he was getting at, but he was angered that I said that if Finland were to join NATO, they would be subsidized by the U.S. for their security arrangements. And people, you know, I took exception to that because saying, oh, no, Sweden and Finland have these very advanced militaries that they're going to be contributing um, a lot to the alliance. And I said, okay, I mean, maybe so, but just look at the... Uh, just raw amount of money that is put into NATO uh, by the U.S. versus every other country, and it's like you know orders of magnitude. The U.S. puts orders of magnitude beyond even the number two, which is Britain, which I think it probably only contributes about you know maybe ten or twenty percent of what the U.S. does. Yeah. Um, did you get any like that kind of complaints complaints from Swedes as well because? Of- I didn't look at all your feedback. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I don't see every single comment that I get. It's possible. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not. I don't. I'm not hugely familiar with the intricacies of the of how political uh, political culture in Finland differs from Sweden. But yeah. uh, uh, my preliminary sense, and maybe this is distorted just because of what I've happened to have seen on social media. But I, mm-hmm. I get the sense that there's a f- segment of Finnish political culture that is pretty ardent um, and even hawkish uh, and, you know, was probably one of, you know, the faction that had supported NATO membership even before the Ukraine uh, invasion. And now, obviously, their their views are majoritarian. Um, and, you know, I, I don't, maybe there's something reminiscent of that in Sweden. I'm not sure, but I, I've, I've happened to have observed it among um, people in Finland. I don't know. Does that track with what your sense is? I think in general the Finns are more have been more afraid of Russia historically because they're closer. But there's been that in Sweden as well. But the thing with Sweden is, uh, I mean, you're a few years younger than I think you're 34 or something. Uh, yeah, I'm 30, 33. Yeah, 33. Yeah, I'm 39. So I remember when I was like in my um, early 20s or whatever in the um, when the American right would would like bring in Sweden into their internal debates and talking about 
social Sweden and how we've saying bad things about it, basically. Or if it was Democrats, we'd say good things about it. But because Sweden used to be doing the Cold War like a like a healthy mix of capitalism and, and uh, socialism or whatever, like. But after the collapse of the um, Soviet Union, or not the collapse, but when they chose to, uh, yeah, not be Soviet Union anymore, um, slowly D- dissolution. I think is maybe the preferred. Yeah, among yeah. People who are more Soviet. Yeah, because I, yeah. I saw this. People have commented that maybe we shouldn't say collapse because it was actually a choice they made. But anyway. Um, I mean, at that point, the, the idea of like something else than, than, uh, you know, capitalism vanished. So I think since then we've been, I don't think, I mean, I see it. I've been complaining about it on other callings, but, but uh, how Sweden has gone from like a very social democratic country to a very neoliberal country culturally. I mean, we have some programs left from that area because they're still popular with, but I mean, that's. That's just the history and everything is now is about like how much are we gonna uh dissolute <laughs> but um so it's kind of and I think there's something similar within Finland um although I can't speak for them in the same way but um things and and so we haven't had like a so real social democratic um uh, government since two thousand six I mean currently. Formerly, the, the government is social democratic, but they are like, I don't know what the term it, it is in English, but they're like a minority government. So they don't have like, they can pass through all their policies. They're dependent on other parties in the parliament. Um, so they have to um, compromise a lot. And so it's, it's a bit ironic that he's talking about agency. I mean, even the word itself, it's, it's very like, it's kind of pathetic how you have it like, use woke lingo in these terms talking about countries having agencies and stuff like that but anyway that the irony is that that's what's what's a country like sweden and i guess to to some extent finland as well have have done they have like gone from having uh, an independent foreign policy to being just just a wheel in this big machine of like neoliberal hegemony and um yeah you know yeah, i think I, I think there's there's something tragic actually about finland relinquishing this status that had so assiduously cultivated since world war ii where you know somewhat uniquely amongst the world it you know was known to be steadfastly neutral and it worked i mean finland i know i'm again i'm not too familiar with the intricacies of its kind of recent political history but at least the popular conception of Finland is that it's sort of been a success story in, you know, uh, forging a state um, over the past, you know, half decade or more. Um, and to just abandon that in this emotional frenzy, um, especially when Finland was actually as a, was seen as synonymous. I mean, Finlandization, right, is the term that connotes neutrality uh, based on this historical status. And you know, to just to just do away with it, and now you know, NATO can extract all the same 
you know, the U.S. weapons manufacturers can now make just as much of a payday on Finland as they can, you know, any other country because now they have to, you know, ensure total interoperability, quote unquote, with the rest of the alliance. I mean, there is something sort of tragic about it. And I think that even with Ireland, um, I don't know if there hasn't been as much movement at all in, in Ireland toward toward relinquishing its neutral status, but there there has been talk and there seems to be an effort politically happening um, to uh, also discard Ireland's commitment since it was founded as a state to military uh, neutrality. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's controversy over whether Ireland actually has been military neutral because it hosts the U.S. Basically, has this special the U.S. military has a special status at the. Um, one of the Ireland airports and stuff. But, you know, by and large, that has been the policy. And uh, apparently because of Ukraine, there was there's uh, movement toward getting rid of that as well. So, yeah, I mean, there's um, uh, it just seems uh, irrational in, in lots of ways. I mean, I don't I don't know how adding a uh, what is it, 820 mile uh, land border of NATO with with Russia is how people think that's going to improve the situation. Um, but you know, apparently that's the you know dogmatic, tightly clung to belief. But yeah, there does seem something to be tragic about. It. I don't know if you have a thought on this uh, Sweden and Finland. Uh, yeah, joining I mean, NATO. Like I thing. said, I think it's just uh, these countries. And it's Sweden. I can only speak for Sweden, like with clear because I live here. But it's been. I mean, this didn't come out of the blue. I mean, maybe it surprised me the extent to which. Um, the left here, I mean, I re- that's what I realized that, I mean, we really don't have, <laughs> there is no left here anymore, not in foreign policy. And, um, but it's been like, you know, 30 years of slowly going in, in a neoliberal direction. So it wasn't a surprise. I, and I mean, I'm like, I, I grew up, I mean, I, in my younger years, I was, I was a lefty, like, uh, but then I actually started to move a bit to the center, but then, when this happened, it was like, I just, I don't even know if I, if I want to vote anymore. <laughs> um, so I'm like one of the 5%, I guess I represent about 5% of the Swedish yeah. uh, population. All right, well, uh, th- uh, th- uh, th- uh, th- thanks, Ollie, just so we can keep it moving. Uh, Richard, do you have any uh, thought on Finland's imminently uh, submitting its NATO application or Sweden? Um, not, not, I mean, not really. I mean, this was expected. I think what you said about Finland uh, having its own sort of independent foreign policy is good. I think what, I think what we proved, like what's been proved during the war with Russia is like the military is not that strong and Finland, um, is a lot, a much more competent country than Ukraine. So I don't think that Russia was a threat to Finland. I don't think Russia wanted to invade Finland or anything. Um, but I think that Finland and Sweden are basically run by uh, uh, people who are uh, Finland and Sweden are run by basically people who are just caught up in the current thing, and this is just you know this is just the norm, and uh, you know it's not I guess it's not that surprising. Has it really been proven though that Russia's military is not that strong? Because there was a New York Times article um, maybe last week where it was being suggested that uh, Russia even now has held back on deploying the full force of its military might as sort of like a part of its strategic, a strategic uh, approach. Um, and, uh, you know, I was watching an um, interview actually on Sky News yesterday with the Russia, uh, Russian ambassador to the EU, and apparently his line is, and, you know, take it with a grain of salt, obviously, but his line is that this 
whatever perceptions there are that Russia's military has proven to be weak is actually a function of the deliberate strategy to not, you know, level places uh, in the way that they could. And, um, you know, they haven't done a mass uh, mobilization yet, right? Um, so, I mean, ha- uh, I'm willing to believe that Russia's military actually has been proven to be weaker than might have been thought. But again, it's sort of one of these things and actually goes back to what we talked about when we did a call in a couple weeks ago. But a lot of that seems just to rely that 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 um, point seems to rely on presuppositions that I'm not sure have been amply um, substantiated. Yeah. But again, I'm 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 I, I'm willing to entertain it. Yeah, but I mean, I think those things are right. But I think those things indicate a bit of weakness too. If the only way you could take territory um, is by leveling places, right? Um, I think it's a sign that you know people people didn't think that that was that was uh, that was necessary. Um, the fact that they're not doing mobilis- general mobilization, you know, who knows what that means? It could be an indication they're not willing to sacrifice that much. So if they don't do it in this situation, they probably wouldn't do it for like fighting Finland or something. I mean, they're like we're imagining some kind of crazy scenario where Russia attacks Finland, which you know. Again, I don't think it was on the table or was ever going to happen. Um, but yeah, I do. Th- I mean, I do think these are. I don't think this went the way they wanted it to go. I mean, I think there's there's some you know pathologies here. Even the even the casualty count, even the ones that Russia has been releasing. I mean, Russia's like uh, you know the U.S. Uh, intelligence, the anonymous sources say fifteen to twenty thousand, but Russia says you know a few thousand. I think it was like two thousand. I don't know if that was the last official thing. Um, or they had a, they had an update since then, but two thousand. I mean, to lose in a in a few months. I mean, that's uh, that, that that that's a lot of that's a lot of men to lose. So I, I don't question that. You know, there's there's uh, uh, you know there there have been problems here, and there there definitely is a uh, a uh, manpower shortage. And so any of those problems that you see with you fighting Ukraine, I mean, where they have like more. I mean, there's you know it's much easier to fight Ukraine than than Finland. Finland is a massively competent country. I mean, a very high level of technological development, high level of state capacity. One reason people thought Ukraine would collapse, and one reason I thought Ukraine wouldn't do so well, is because it's just been so massively incompetent um, uh, in everything. And like you look at it just like its GDP and its level of corruption. I mean, it has low state capacity, but apparently is pretty uh, decent at, at fighting. Um, and then you know Finland, you, you think they would be better, or who knows? Maybe because Ukraine is so poor, maybe the countries that you know suck at governing are actually good at fighting, and the ones that are good at governing are not not so good at fighting. But either way, I don't think Finland was uh, uh, was that threatened by uh, um, was that threatened by Russia, and I think this is less security concerns than you know getting caught up. It's like being in the EU. It's like it's like you know so it's like declaring solidarity with Black Lives Matter or you know uh, you know passing some UN resolution. I think it's just they they feel like it's a uh, you know it's, it's 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 they stick it to Putin. I mean the New York Times headline of this is like and blow to Putin like Finland and Sweden like you know, are going to join NATO. Uh, you know I think I think this is the way that unfortunately they're thinking about things. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's go to the final caller here. Susan, you are up. Susan, are you there? Hello. Yes. yes hello. I'm here. Hi. Okay. Uh, quickly, um, have either of you read uh, the article? It was an intercept article from about 2016, 2017 by, I think, Lee Fang and Zed Jelani about some leaked emails from the head of NATO, his name was Breedlove. Um, he's a, he was the top, um, I guess, commander. Uh, yeah, he was the top for, U.S. commander for, for NATO yeah, from 2012 so, to 2016, I think. Right. So he, there were some leaked emails that are very insightful. And I, no one's mentioned them. Um, he was basically writing to, um, uh, to Colin Powell, 
and uh, he can consider why he was writing to Colin Powell, uh, <laughs> wanting to know why Obama was not um, being more forceful and bellicose toward Russia. And he was he was furious. And he's like, you know, what can we do? And what is wrong with him? And can't you talk to him? And, you know, pulling out all the stops. But I, I think it's important because it gives, you know, the, the mindset of what was going on way back then. Um, this was all, <laughs> this was all in the works. I don't think this is anything, this is anything new. Um, and, uh, the other point I want to make is, uh, I think it is, um, I think the, the tide is turning a little bit, um, in, in people's opinion of this thing. I mean, I'm just a regular person. Um, and in speaking with other people uh, who previously supported this, uh, you know, this baby formula thing and the money that's being spent is really irritating people. Um, sometimes it's something little like that that can really change the course of uh, people's opinion. And I, um, I think it lends itself to a quick action. Um, I don't see anything being protracted because I suspect that economic issues here and in Europe are going to um, start to change people's minds um, quite a bit. And, um, uh, you know, there's going to be resistance to this. And that's all. Yeah, I agree with you, Susan. I think that that was what I said earlier. I think politics can save us. I think that, the, uh, you know, I think the American voter cares more about um, uh, the economy than they do about foreign policy, unless it's like right after 9-11 or something. You can't maintain this level of hysteria, even like in the population. I don't think from the start that people were as crazy about Ukraine as the elites were. But, you know, to the extent that people were a little bit crazy about Ukraine, that has... Uh, settled down a lot. I mean, the baby formula thing is interesting. It's interesting what sort of gets, you know, it gets people, uh, what, what sort of is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Um, but I think you're, I think you're, uh, right. And as far as the breed love emails, I, you know, I didn't actually didn't see that story. That's, you know, that's interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up after this. Um, the, uh, uh, but if you look at like, you know, this is the stuff they do out in the open. I mean, if you look at like, you know, just go read what NATO commanders are saying to the media about any situation. I mean, they're always way more hawkish than the administration is, right? So it's not, it's not you know, it's not uh, surprising uh, that they're out there doing the same thing. I mean, often bureaucrats are the most zealous enforcers of the mission. And what does NATO exist for? NATO exists like for literally one reason. I need to antagonize Russia to be in Russia's face. Uh, so it's not surprising that these are like, you know, these people. Wait, it's not a defensive alliance? Are you sure? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a defensive it's a defensive alliance that keeps moving, you know, closer and closer, uh, you know, within the old, uh, the old uh, Eastern Bloc. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's all, it's to be expected. And yeah, it's, uh, you know, Obama, I mean, I give Obama credit. Obama was willing to push back on these people. I mean, Biden, you know, Biden and Obama, they each have like their spots where like they were fed up and they did something like so Biden with the uh, pulling back from uh, Afghanistan. Uh, Obama, you know, escalated in Syria too much, but, you know, they wanted him to do much worse. Um, you know, his Russia policy was pretty, pretty dumbish. Um yeah, I was well, seeing a New York, New, uh, Washington Post article. It's like, oh, this is bad for Obama's legacy because look at the war. And it's like, no, when Obama was there, like, you know, Putin, you know, did not launch. I mean, they had the Crimea and they had all that other stuff thanks to American intervention, but there wasn't a war like this, right? So, you know, we, we started providing the heavy weapons after Obama. 
Uh, and then we got the major, you know, destructive war. Uh, so I think it vindicates um, Obama's approach. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, I mean, by the time after Russiagate, I mean, after, um, you know, after Russiagate, you know, particularly and after Trump's election um, and they came to blame Putin for everything that was going on in the long in the world and then the uh, and then the impeachment it was over for any kind of reasonable russian policy i mean even if obama was the president right now and biden then by rather than biden you know we'd probably end up in the same place unfortunately well yeah i mean i think it's a really underrated component as to why liberals in particular have been so radicalized about Russia and even vis-a-vis the ukraine war that they just spent years under trump being traumatized um, that purportedly uh, Putin inflicted on them this enormous strife by installing Trump into a power. I mean, there, I've mentioned this figure many times over the years, but in 2018, there was a YouGov poll showing that supermajorities of Democrats, Democratic voters, believed not just that Russia had interfered or interfered on behalf of Trump or something vague like that, but that they hacked the voting systems to get Trump in office. So, you know, a supermajority of the Democrats believe that. And of course, that had an enormous effect on the political incentives around Democrats' approach to Russia. And, you know, when Biden first got into, was first elected in 2020, there was a Financial Times article that I've also cited a number of times where a, um, a uh, European diplomat was anonymously quoted and commented on the Biden administ- the incoming Biden administration as saying that they he, this European diplomat was troubled because in his view these these incoming foreign policy professionals in the Democratic Party were so viscerally um, antagonized by Putin and so emotional about how they needed to urgently confront Russia that he thought that that was going to have a hugely skewing effect on um, U.S. Russia relations going forward, and that was correct. And yeah, Russia Gate was a huge aspect of that. Um, you know, uh, as far as those Breedlove emails, yeah, I actually do remember reading that at the time in 2016. There were these hacked or leaked emails from Breedlove where he was complaining that Obama was insufficiently willing to up the ante in Ukraine by sending arms and all this. And Breedlove, you know, at the time was the command, you know, the top commander in NATO, you know, who ran the military operations essentially for NATO, which a U.S. general always does, um, was trying to scheme ways to um, pressure Obama into acquiescing to um, more assertively intervening in Ukraine and sending arms. And the, the irony is that although at the time Breedlove was cast, when those emails came out, Breedlove was depicted mostly unfavorably. Uh, as excessively bellicose and kind of crazy. Um, but as the years have gone by, uh, his position became the consensus one. Um, you know, uh, the following year, or uh, not the following year, but when the following, in the following presidency, I mean, Trump um, ended up acquiescing to the lobbying campaign of Lindsey Graham and John McCain to send the lethal weapons to Ukraine, uh, which of course was totally absent from the prevailing narrative about him supposedly being in this collusive arrangement with uh, Putin. Um, and, you know, so Breedlove was vindicated in the sense that this idea that didn't get as much of a hearing when he was proposing it back in uh, 2014 
uh, ended up becoming much more mainstream to where, it, to where now it's an article of faith that, of course, the U.S. should be arming Ukraine. And if you question that even a little bit, you're automatically maligned as a Putin sympathizer. Um, and yeah, uh, Breedlove, but Breedlove is actually very deranged. I mean, if you look at what he said since the war started, he was one of the first people of any stature to come out and overtly call for a no-fly zone. Um, and he said that he was calling for a no-fly zone. This was probably late February, early March. He explicitly said that he was calling for a no-fly zone because he knew that it would initiate a war with Russia, and he wanted that. Um, that was his reasoning. And, um, you know, he's a much sought-after pundit, including on international media. I've seen him, when I was in the UK, I saw him commenting on various uh, British shows about what he was recommending in terms of escalation of military tactics in Ukraine. So he's still around. Um, and as crazy and deranged as he appears to be, I mean, it should be noted for the record that his uh, previous priorities have now uh, become the prevailing wisdom. Um, so that's sort of not a uh, particularly uh, pleasing notion. Um, okay, uh, thanks, Susan, and uh, thanks, Richard, and thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, like I said uh, at the beginning, we're Richard and I are going to be doing this uh, probably weekly, uh, and it's tentatively going to be every Thursday, so not not Friday as it is today. And uh, I'll also be doing my uh, kind of more solo show, or occasionally I'll have another guest. But Richard and I are going to do this uh, once a week. So uh, thanks for listening as always. And uh, Richard, do you want to sign off for? Crack a joke? Uh, sure. <laughs> no, like, you're putting me on the spot there. No, it's great okay. talking to you, Mike. Look forward to doing this weekly. Uh, and uh, yeah, everyone have a good weekend. All right, bye bye.